0: I don't know if you were here last Sunday, last Sunday, um, we we did the first half of this chapter, and I heard some disturbing news, which will make no sense to you if you weren't here last week, but I'll explain. Uh, Disturbing news um, is that yesterday, at Park Run, Neville did not run like Neville. (laughs) Um, Now, don't panic if you don't know what that means. Uh, Last week, I used the illustration of this man who runs with other people to help them and to encourage them. Apparently, Neville didn't do that yesterday, Uh, so... That was a shame. Anyway, we're going to pick up um, the second half of this chapter, page 1155. I'm going to read it through so we see what we're going to cover. Now, let me say, there's a lot in this. And I also want to be up front and say there are some very hard things in this, very hard things in this, um, and some very hard uh, words, and particularly hard words for our culture to hear. Um, so we're going to need some... Wisdom. This afternoon, we're going to need God's help to listen to to what God's word says and to try and work out together what it means. Uh, but let me read, and then we'll think through it together. So, verse 20. We're going to read from verse 20 through to the end. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants; but in your thinking, be adults. In the law. It is written, With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone's prophesying... They're convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then should we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue... Two, or at most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it's reached? If anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. I want to say, we're going to pray together in a minute, but I just want to say, it's quite important that we don't get distracted uh, or focusing on one section. So I think the stuff it says about women is really, really hard. Okay, it is really hard, And we're going to think about that later, but that is not all this passage has to say. And we're going to work on that and try and understand how that might work out. What does that mean? Um, And just as a heads up. I don't think it means that women need to be silent in church all the time, as you might have noticed this afternoon already. But we need to work out why we've had women praying when it seems to say we shouldn't. So why do we do that? We'll get to that. But we're going to need God's help. So let's pray together and then let's, uh, let's dig into this. Father, please, please help us. Lord, I, we, we need your spirit's help. We, we need him to be our teacher this afternoon. Father, this word is your word. That means it is good. It will challenge us, but it's good. And we pray that you teach us for the glory of your name. Amen. Okay, what is the perfect church service? Have you ever been to the perfect church service? I mean, what, what would it look like? What are we supposed to do when we come together? I mean, this might perhaps this perhaps this isn't it. What is the perfect service? Is there such a thing as the perfect church service? What would happen in it? Now that seems to be sort of what's in Paul's mind as he talks about in this passage. He talks about the church coming together. So look at verse 23. So if the whole church comes together, that's, that's, that's what he's got in mind. Um, he's got it again in verse 26. What should we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together? So here is what's in Paul's head. What are we supposed to do when we come together as a church? It's one of the things we do as a church We don't just live our little lives in little isolation all over the place and say, well, we belong to Globe Church. No, part of Globe Church is we come together. We gather. And we don't just do that on a Sunday. We gather at various times during the week. We gather midweek. Sometimes we gather informally. We meet up with someone for coffee, just two people. That's a gathering. That's part of this coming together. But I think particularly here he has in mind the formal gathering of God's people. Now, we already know... And uh, if you've been around for a while, uh, you'll remember back in chapter 11, if you flick back to chapter 11, verse 17, Paul is not hugely complimentary about the Corinthian church services. In fact, he says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. So Corinth is not running a smooth, slick, perfect church operation. In fact, they're doing more harm than good. And so he's writing to correct a church that's getting it wrong. But this is a big question for us. How do we know what we're supposed to do? Because if you've been to church, if you've been to more than one church in your life, you'll know that we vary quite a lot as churches. In some churches they wear robes, in some churches they wear t shirt and shorts. In some churches there are hymns and organs, in others there's a rock band. In some churches there are candles, in others there's smoke machines. In some churches, there are 20 people gathered in a home. In others, there are thousands gathered in a stadium. I mean, what is a church? They don't even look vaguely similar. What are we supposed to do? Some churches are timed down to the very last minute. You have three minutes and 13 seconds for that prayer. And then we're moving on to the next thing, and it's all prescriptive. It's very, very constrained. Other churches are like, Woohoo, let's just do what we want, and it goes on for hours. How are we supposed to know? How do you decide what's appropriate? Okay, supposing one day, let's take a silly example as a thought experiment. (laughs) Supposing one day someone suggests we could inject more excitement into our services if we had a fire breather performing behind me as I preach. People just think that would add a bit of fire. (laughs) Which if you listen to the Royal Wedding yesterday, the preacher yesterday, he liked fire. Anyway, we'll come back to him later. On what grounds would we say no to the fire breather? Or perhaps, on what grounds would we say yes? Perhaps I'm just assuming we'd say no. How do you decide what's appropriate? Now, the danger is that we answer those questions wrongly. So the danger is that we might do it based on our preferences. I just prefer things this way. I don't really like fire breathing. I don't, that doesn't do it for me. And others say, well, actually, that's my thing. I love it. And so we make our decisions on what we like. There's tons of this that happens in church. Oh, I don't really like that church. By which we mean it didn't quite fit our preference of doing things. Now, surely, we can see that's a dodgy way to make decisions. Or it may be that we decide what to do based on culture around us. So what can we do that would be appealing to the culture around us? So it's not about my preferences, but we do want to reach this world. So what could we do to reach our world? Perhaps that would help us to shape our services. I mean, preaching isn't that popular. So going back to the royal wedding and the preach yesterday, he preached for almost 14 minutes. Man, the uproar. He was so long. He went on and on. Don't know why he had to bring religion into it and all this sort of stuff so long people said <laughs> try coming to globe church <laughs> and perhaps we think well people aren't really into preaching but fire breathing might be the thing that connects to our culture perhaps that's it and so we make our decisions based on what culture says we try and be appealing to our culture that's another way of doing it or th- the third way we might try to do it and all of these i'm suggesting are not right the third way we may decide to do it is based on tradition well, this is just the way we've always done it. Or this is the way my church did it when I was a little child and therefore this is the right way of doing it. Right, we all know that. And tradition is a weird thing. No one stops to think why I chatted to a person the other day who had just got, who'd got married. It was no one here, so don't worry. They'd got married and they said, oh, it's really weird, at Christmas we have this tradition on Christmas Day where for 45 minutes we sit in silence and stare at the Christmas tree. you find yourself going, why? And there's this bloke who's just married this girl. He's going, I've got a snare at Christmas tree for 45 minutes. <laughs> yes, you do, because that's what we do in our family. And we laugh at that because it seems ridiculous, but can I dare to suggest that perhaps as churches we do the same thing? We have these traditions and people come in and they say, why do you do that? Well, I don't know, it's just what we do. No, we need to get rid of all of those. It's not about my preferences. It's not about culture. It's not about tradition. we do going to need to ask, what does the Bible say about it? Now, in one sense, we would love for it to say, uh, here's what you should do. Sing a couple of songs. Two, maybe three. And then you should do a little prayer thing and then you should do something else and then you should do something. So there's lots of stuff about, there's lots of stuff about um, what we'd love it to say. You're right. I don't have the key for a cook's house. Linda has the key. I have the key. Sorry. Ah! That's right, that's where the kids' work happens. Sorry, Dan. Oh. Uh, good. Okay, back to this. We've got to get into what God says. We've got to work out what God says about how we should do our services. God doesn't give us a list of principles. He doesn't say, sing this, thing, this, thing. this. What what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what God gives us are some principles that we're supposed to work out. And so the question becomes, how do we as a church family do the best we can and do as much good as we can when we gather together as a church family? That's what's happening here. So Paul is speaking to a specific church, Corinth, who are getting things specifically wrong. They're doing more harm than good. And this is not prescriptive of how every single church is supposed to run. Paul hasn't written this to say, this is how you're supposed to do it. Paul is speaking to a specific situation where they're getting things wrong and he's saying, I need to sort you out and straighten you out. We need some principles to sort things out. So we've got to be careful that we don't go, well, Paul says we should have two or three prophets. That means we need two or three prophets. That's not the way it works. This is not a prescription for what we're supposed to do. But there are huge principles here. So as we watch Paul kind of do surgery on the Corinthian church, we need to allow him to show us what we need to learn. And what we discover here is there's one big principle which guides what Paul says. And you get it in verse 33. Have a look at verse 33. I think this is the key verse. There's one underlying theological foundation that Paul is building on. Fundamentally, Paul is driven by this question, what is God like? If you want to know how to do church, if you want to know what a church should look like, it needs to look like God. What is God like? That's the question we need to ask. Because the church is the temple that God is building. It's God who's making these things grow. It's God's family. It's God's spirit who's doing this. And therefore, the church needs to be like God. God. Take its character from him. Here is Paul's theological statement in verse 33. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. You see it? God is not about chaos and confusion. He is about peace. This is not what God is like. He doesn't create chaotic, disordered things. No, he makes things that are like him. I have to confess to not noticing in huge detail, but I think that uh, I know that Meghan and Harry got married yesterday. I spotted that. Um, I think her dress in the evening was made by Stella McCartney. I think. Huh. Look at me, boom. Now, it's interesting because what they say is, you know, it's a classic Stella McCartney dress. It, it's got all the hallmarks of Stella. It, it's like, you know, it's her style. It's right. That's because that's how we make. We make stuff that's kind of reflects us. And the church is made by God. It's made like God. And God is not a God of disorder. Now, at this point, some of us here naturally love things that are ordered. Some of us are super-duper with things that are all nice and neat, on a sheet, written down, nice and clear. We like to know what's happening. And so we hear this and we think, oh, what a relief. God is not a God of disorder. He's like me. (laughs) And that's terrific news because it means that I don't have to put up with a church which is all, I don't like all that chaotic stuff. It's just got to be ordered. 13 seconds for this, 17 seconds for you to blow your nose and then we can all carry on. I don't cope well with spontaneous and unpredictable. They're not words that kind of sit in my in my vocabulary. It's spontaneous. I've got some, in three weeks' time, I've got some space in my diary for spontaneous fun. It's that sort of thing, right? We like it ordered. We like to start on time and finish on time. In fact, we like to finish a few minutes early because then everybody feels happy. Others of us aren't like that. Others of us love freedom. We don't like to feel constrained spontaneity is in our DNA. We find the rigidity and the formality of a kind of order, 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 oh, we're finished. We find that frustrating. And we want something that's much more liberating. And now we read this and it sounds like it's all, yeah, oh, the organized guys have got it right after all. No, they haven't. And it's not just because I might be over there. I want to see this very carefully. This is the heart of what I'm going to say. And I know I'm taking a long time on this one verse, but it will help us then to unpack the rest, I hope. Paul does not say here that God is a God of order. He says he's a God of peace. The o- opposite of disorder here is not highly ordered. The opposite of disorder is peace. Because what God is, is not a manic, formal, organisational freak. He is a God of relational order. He is a God of relational harmony. God is not the God of a discordant noise clashing in. God is the God of a beautiful harmony. You see it in God himself. This is what God is like. God is peace. God himself is peace. Not because he's on his own and therefore he's got peace and quiet. You can't have peace on your own because peace is about relationships. And so you have God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit who are in perfect relationship with one another, relational harmony, where they love one another, where there's beauty in their relationships. They're distinct from one another, but they're absolutely one. There's not conflict, there's not competition, there's no strife, there's no frustration. Listen to this, right? God the Father is never disappointed with the Son. He's never, oh, it's a shame. There's never disharmony between them. God the Holy Spirit's never kind of going, can I get a look in please? Why does no one talk about me? This doesn't happen within God because he is the God of relational harmony. He's the God of peace. And so when he creates, what bubbles out of him is a world of relational harmony. We haven't got time to say, man, we could spend ages on this. But when God creates a world, the world he creates back in Genesis 1 is a world of relational harmony where all things are in their right place on distinct days, each thing in its right place with the sun and the moon and the stars to govern the day and the night. And then humanity to live in relational harmony with one another and with God. It's a beautiful picture. That's peace, right? That's what God is like. He's the God of peace, relational harmony. And it is only when humanity sins, it's only when we turn against God, the God of relational harmony, that suddenly chaos and confusion come into the world. What is it that happens when human beings sin against God? The world breaks down, there's chaos, there's disorder, there's mess, there's arguments, there's fights, there's conflict, there's strife. There's relational disorder. It's what we see in the world all around us. This is the reason that God sent his son Jesus. Jesus came to restore relational harmony. He came to restore us to relationship with God. He died on a cross to take all the chaos and the disorder and the punishment that we deserve. And he restores us to relationship with God. He restores us to relationship with one another. Relational harmony. He's the God of peace. And so the church that he creates... Is a church of peace, not a church of disorder. This fits with everything we've seen so far in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. It's a body in relational harmony with one another. Love is the most important because love is the relational glue. It's about relationships. The church is the place where peace rules. But the trouble is, sin still causes chaos in the church, right? Because we still sin, we still do stuff wrong, we still act selfishly, we still get competitive and jealous. And so what Paul is saying, he's arguing to this Corinthian church, pursue peace, relational harmony in the church. This is nothing to do with style of church, nothing to do with whether you use an organ or a keyboard, it's all to do with how you relate to one another. Right, having said all of that, I'm now going to take you through the passage and I'm going to show you two big things. Um, And oh, we're going to have to go fast. Firstly, (laughs) my first point a relational church will have powerful participation. Powerful participation. So, have a look. You have to screw your brains in just for a second for this bit. It's a confusing little chunk, this. He He says to them, stop thinking like children. He quotes this bit from Isaiah. And he says, here's the deal, right? If you hear someone speaking tongues and you can't understand, if you can't understand what's happening, that's a serious problem. When God wants to show judgment to people, he speaks to them in a foreign language so they can't understand. It's a sign of judgment. So follow it through. Tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. They're a sign of God's judgment on unbelievers. See that? If... if Someone who's not a Christian comes into a church and everyone's talking in gibberish that they can't understand, it's a sign that they are under God's judgment. Prophecy, however, that is speaking clearly, this is what we saw last week, speaking God's truth clearly by the Spirit. Prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for Believers. So this is how it works out. If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and guests, inquirers, unbelievers come in, they're just going to say, you're out of your mind. What good's that? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while well, everyone's prophesying, they're convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Right? What is it that powerfully shows the guest, the visitor, that God is among them. It's as the whole church participates together. As the whole church is doing something. Paul doesn't say the guest walks in, they're blown away by the awesome preacher. Doesn't say that. It says while everyone is prophesying, that seems to be an expectation that Everybody who comes to church, who knows the Lord Jesus, is expected to be participating in what we're doing. We don't come to church to be spectators. This is not like a cinema experience. I get that when you go to the cinema, if you try and participate, it really winds everyone else up. You know, if you're shouting stuff out, if you're singing along to the songs, if, you know, if you're whatever you're doing, it's very annoying. You're not supposed to participate in the cinema. You're supposed to spectate, keep your mouth shut and watch it. That is completely the wrong approach to church. When you come to church, you come to participate, not to spectate. It's a big disaster if church is simply a load of people sitting watching a couple of people at the front perform. I've been really convicted of this. We're going to get to how we're going to have a go at changing it. But it cannot be because God's people together, and you say, I don't really participate, you do. Yes, you do. That's why we sing together. Do you not realize that when you sing, you are singing out God's truth? It has a powerful effect on people who come. And therefore, when you sing, it matters how you sing. Because if you sing like, you know, ma, ma, bah, blessed be your name, sort of stuff, what does that say? And yet, when God's people together lift their voices and blast out God's praise, what a powerful prophetic witness that is to those who come. See, we are participating one of the things I love about Globe Church. We love to sing, and we should sing because singing is one of the ways. It's not the only way, but it's one of the ways. And what about? And I know that this, I know this is, won't really ever happen because it's too hard. Um, there's a part of me that would love to be in a church where there's kind of people shouting out in the sermon. But I know that's too hard. I did. There was a guy at last church I was at who used to do this. He was a true Cockney bloke. He was a bus driver. And he used to go, blinding, (laughs) like when I'd say, (laughs) he was great. Anyway, but, and and that is a bit culturally weird, and that would be a bit weird, and that, that would feel a bit weird, so I'm not saying let's suddenly start pretending to be something we're not. But actually it is part of, as you talk afterwards, as we turn to people next to us, as you engage with what's being preached, as we're listening together, as we're talking, prophesying together, It has a powerful thing. And it means that people who come in go, it's not just that random bloke at the front who thinks this. Everybody here seems to think this. And suddenly it begins to expose something of themselves and and can have a powerful effect. A lot of people would say it wasn't the preaching that helped them to see the truth of it. It was the church. All the difference in the world between listening to a sermon online and listening to a sermon in the community of God's people. And so I want to encourage us to come to church to participate. There's a power in our participation, not to spectate, but to join in, to have a part to play, to sing it out, to pray as you're listening, to talk, and all the rest of it. But second thing, amen, absolutely. Uh, Second thing, careful consideration. There's powerful participation and careful consideration. Have a look at verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn. Try and picture what the church might have been like. We don't know. What, is, what kind of impression does this give you the Corinthian church? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three, th- most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet. Do you you see? It feels like this is a church that's quite big on participation. But they come and it all just kicks off at once. There's like loads of stuff all going on at once. There's not a participation. it's, It's not joining with one another. It's not this relational harmony. Instead, there's just this disunity as everybody wants to be heard. Surely you've seen like show and tell at school. You know, so you take your little, you know, your your feather that you found by the side of the street and you take it to school with you because you want to show it. And you know you've got to wait for 25 other kids. You don't care. You don't care what they bought. I don't care about your cat's toenail that fell out. I don't care. I just want to show you my feather. And that's what's happening in Corinth. They're like all coming together, they've got their gift they want to show and tell. I'm like, when is this guy going to shut up so I can have my go? Oh, he's not going to. Let's just go. Let's just go. Let's all go together. There's no... The, the problem, it is chaotic kind of organisationally, but it's far more significant. It's chaotic relationally. They don't love each other. They don't care about each other. They're not listening to each other. There's just this chaos. And Paul says, look, you may have a, a tongue. You may have this amazing gift of tongues where you can speak in some language that Perhaps the language of the angels, you've got this amazing gift, but if there's no one to interpret it, then just keep quiet. We don't want to hear it. Because what matters is that the church should be built up. The end of verse 26. Relational harmony, the things that bring us together. Then he talks about prophets. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what's said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. This, this tells us something important about prophecy. We began to—I I did a whole load of stuff on prophecy last week, so I'm not going to go over all that again. You can go back and listen to that if you want. But prophecy is speaking, God speaking to people for their good, clearly together by the Spirit. It is speaking stuff that is helpful. But do you notice that it's not kind of some, I've, I've got this, this thing has come on me, the Spirit's come on me and I must speak. No, 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 you can keep control. And if someone else got something to say, just be quiet. You see, this must mean that the prophecy that Paul's talking about here, it's not like, doesn't have the same authority as the Bible. Because there are some prophecies which are going to be lost, they're never going to be shared, because someone else has got something they want to say. And actually what you have here is a, a relational engagement where we're listening to one another. And as one person is speaking, someone else goes, actually that reminds actually that. There's a verse in the Bible that talks about that. Or well, there's something else that I'm thinking of that... You see, there's an engagement. I think you imagine that prophecy should bypass our minds and just sort of come out and, and take control of us. No, that's not true at all. prophecy the holy spirit works in combination with our minds and with our understanding and we engage in what's happening and the spirit then helps us to speak in ways which are helpful now we we need to finish um but i do i do want to just tackle this bit about women um because this is this is hard i want to show you something i want to show you something that i saw in the metro on friday i was preparing this sermon this was the front of the metro. How many people saw this? Yes, you know what I'm going to say. Women are not allowed to read this paper. And I thought I would say something clever on the back. On the back it says, reading confuses the female mind. So, oh. <laughs> I opened it up. And inside it says, don't let the, bu- I can't say that word, don't let the b- grind you down. And so here is a, paper, right? So here's the, here's the thing in the middle. Don't let the b- grind you down. In other words, you women, you're always being told by men that you're useless and that you're thick and you're stupid. Don't let them grind you down. And it's, I mean, it's an advert for a, for a TV program. And I saw it and I thought, there is no relational harmony in our world between men and women. we, we, We think we live in this enlightened age when everything is wonderful. It isn't wonderful. There is such conflict between men and women in our world. Men and women fighting for top place. Men and women fighting to be the best. There is no relational harmony in our world. And what we see in the Bible is that God has created men and female, male and female, to be united to be one in relational harmony, just like the Father, Son and Spirit are, not quite just like, but similar to, the way Father, Son and Spirit are united, relationally, not in competition with one another, not trying to be one another, but in perfect relationship with one another. So that's how God created men and women, male and female, to be one together. I think in the church in Corinth, that was completely going haywire. I think in the church in Corinth, Paul is specifically Arguing and saying the women need to be silent because there is such a mist, such a confusion on this issue. And the reason I say that is because there are other places where Paul seems to think it is fine for a woman to take part in a church service. Back in chapter 11, he says that a woman can prophesy and can pray. There are others who are described as his fellow workers. There's Priscilla and Aquila who teach the Bible to others. There's There's loads of examples of this. But what he says here is that men and women need to operate in relational harmony. Men have been given by God a responsibility to lead, to take the primary leadership within the church. Women have all sorts of gifts of leadership that are exercised and that we want to use. But men have been given that responsibility by God and it is for relational harmony when we work together. Now, I know these are big issues. I preached, I'm not going to spend age on this so I preached on this a few weeks ago. You can go back and listen to that sermon. Men and women living in perfect relationship with one another, not demeaning one another. And I get that this verse has been used by churches to, un, to support a sexist view of women rather than a truly relationally harmonious view. But we need to finish. Um, and let me just piece all of this together. The big thing I want us to think as we, as we think about what we're doing as a church family is to say, how can we be relationally in harmony with one another, powerfully participating, carefully considering what we're doing, so that we can build each other up? Now, what we're going to do is, um, we've got a bit of time at the end of this service, because I want us to have a go at doing some of this stuff. Um... I want us to have a go at thinking about what might it look like. You see, I think as a church gets bigger, the f- number of voices that are heard gets fewer. In a small church, you hear lots of voices. In a bigger church, you hear fewer and fewer voices. And I think we don't hear enough voices. This is what I've been struck by at Globe. So I'm going to give us an t- opportunity to uh, to hear some more voices, to hear from one another, to hear what God, by his spirit, has been teaching us, been saying to us as we've studied his word. I get this, this is is different to something we've done before. So this is how we're going to do it. We're going to sing a song. Um, We're going to powerfully participate as we sing a song. And then I'd love you to be thinking about what are some of the things that particularly God has been putting on your heart. Perhaps it's something this week he's been teaching you. Perhaps it's something from this passage. Perhaps it's something about the beauty of harmony of relationship. What is it that God has been particularly speaking to you? And I'm going to give you an opportunity to share that. You can either share it this week, um, if you feel confident to that, or you might think, actually, I feel a bit scared doing that. Why not think about it this week and have a space next week to do something? But we want to open up for opportunities for people to speak so that we can hear one another better. So we're going to sing a song, and then I will confess, um, I have asked someone to kick it off. Um, and Flo is going to start us off, um, because Flo was doing something this morning with, um, with some women in the Bible study this morning, and I said, hey, would you just share some of what you were doing this morning? Let's hear what God's been teaching us as a church. So why don't we stand? We're going to sing the crown song. Let's enjoy this. But let's be praying. praying that even now God would help us to think of things we could say that would build up the church. Let's hear from one another.